presented by the Common Sense Policy Roundtable. Welcome to Common Sense Digest, the podcast that seeks to inject a little common sense into Colorado's policy discussion. Here's your host, Earl Wright. Welcome to the Common Sense Digest podcast, a monthly event we hope you will add to your schedule. My name is Earl Wright, and I am the chairman of the board of Common Sense Policy Roundtable. Thank you for joining us today. Well, we're in a bit of a crisis with regards to the economy for Colorado and the, and the country as a whole. In the blink of an eye, we'll all of a sudden have 20 plus million people unemployed. And if you remember, we were bragging no more than six months ago how we had increased during this economic expansion 5 million people on top of where we were th- three years ago. So in one week, we wiped out three years of effort to increase our employment. Colorado is in no better shape. We have a high unemployment. We have small businesses that are being devastated. We have bankers trying to line up to make certain that they got PPP loans. We're going to talk about in a second with one of our guests. And we also have the bankers themselves talking to all of their particular borrowers to say, what can we do to help you make it through this particular time period? Colorado itself is in a budgetary situation. We have some real issues in front of us as the state of Colorado. No more than two weeks ago, we had the governor and and various members of the legislature saying that we might be $1 billion short of revenues. Within 14 days, that number has become 2 to $3 billion. And it looks like the number isn't going to get any better. But the point very simply is that we have to take a really hard look at Colorado's budget, where we are, what our challenges might be, and how do we set our priorities at the local level with regards to When I say the local level, I mean the state level, with regards to how do we get ourselves functioning as an economy and how do we not impair it with legislative actions that we might take or budgetary decisions we might make over the next few months as the legislature goes back into session. Today, we have uh, three really outstanding guests to talk about the topic at hand. First, we have a University of Colorado regent, Heidi Ganahl, but she's more than just a regent. She's an entrepreneur, a very successful small business owner, a member of the, our board of directors at CSPR, and she is a, a regent who is well engaged with regards to the educational process of the, in the Colorado, and she has a strong sense because of the small businesses that she and her husband own and the ones that she has started as to what does economic recovery mean, and she's also involved in a national effort to help us with small businesses. We also have Dan Norberg. He is with the Small Business Administration Region 8 Administrator based in Denver, Colorado. For those that you don't know, that agency is the one that is really helping small business recover and having the funding necessary out of the CARES Act so that we, in fact, can have funds available for the small businesses and keep people employed that are on their payrolls at the present time through the PPP, and we'll ask you more about that in a few minutes. He is involved in South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, and Montana. He has also been a former Colorado House of Representatives representing House District 14 for three terms. So, Dan, thank you for that. But let's get started with uh, Chris Brown. Chris is, as you all know, is the Director of Policy and Research for Common Sense Policy Roundtable, and he just published... Is Colorado budget ready for a recession? Colorado's revenue outlook has rapidly changed from record highs to a potential $3 billion shortfall. And Chris, let's hope it's that small. But I'm not going to ask you to start there. I want you to give us the lay of the land 
with regards to what's happening in Colorado with employment, people registering for unemployment, and, and also just where's the environment, the economic environment at the present time. Thank you, Earl. Yeah, I think it's just incredible to consider everything that has changed within even just the last month since the last time we we had this discussion, we, we had our previous podcast and talking about this issue. And a lot of the issues that we discussed, we're now seeing come to light. And the paper we released yesterday, I think was an attempt to paint the picture at the level of the state budget. But, you know, we are really rapidly hurtling towards some massive failures for both businesses and and government. I think the news that came out yesterday was related to the latest figures on weekly unemployment insurance claims. And you mentioned the figures nationally, which represent about 13% of the U.S. labor force has filed for unemployment benefits in the last four weeks. In Colorado, that number has reached over 230,000 Coloradans, or nearly 7.5% of the labor force. And as those figures have climbed, uh, some very interesting, compelling modeling done by the Tax Foundation has suggested that, again, based upon the most recent, as of yesterday's new unemployment insurance claims, the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund, which pays the UI benefits, has roughly eight weeks left um, until it's insolvent. Yeah, and Earl, I think when you look at at businesses overall, I saw a very interesting piece of data from JP Morgan that suggested small businesses on average have about 27 days of cash buffer on average. And when you consider we are here in Colorado, uh, as of today, about 22 days into the stay-at-home orders, the picture for both the solvency of a lot of the essential um, government programs along with business balance sheets, we're very quickly approaching a very major crisis. But, you know, Chris, one of the things that that has become apparent to us, too, is that uh, Colorado is uh, at best energy agnostic, at worst energy negative, and you have a significant part of the revenues at the community level as well as the state level that come from the energy industry, and it's being decimated at the present time internationally, and you have pricing with regards to the wellhead price that you're getting single digit numbers. So when the uh, legislature gets together and they start talking about future revenues coming into the state, I hope they don't think they will see the energy sector of our economy, which happens to be the fourth or fifth largest energy sector in the United States, contributing back to our future earnings because we pretty well decimated that and the international environment certainly hasn't helped it. But I'm going to let you answer that after we bring in Heidi here for a second. Heidi, I, you are what I would call a triple hitter. You've got three things that we could talk to you about. And let me bring up, first of all, University of Colorado system and being a regent there. I think everybody's probably aware of it, but I'm going to state it again. Your involvement there, you are involved with the largest single employer in the state, and I believe the largest source of, of revenues and income of individuals in the state uh, with regards to all the people you employ, as well as all of the revenues that come in through tuition and the students that are there. Is that a fair statement? Yes, Earl. Uh, the University of Colorado system contributes over $12 billion to the economy each year and employs over 30,000 people. And 
educates over 60,000. So it's a big part of the economic engine. Well, how is COVID-19 impacting you? Because I cannot imagine that this state will recover unless somehow CU system gets back to fully functioning. Well, I just got the latest data this morning. And if we don't return this fall, like if we stay online, the consequences could be up to an $850 million shortfall for the University of Colorado. And if we do return, it's still going to be bad uh, with about $350 million in um, you know negative revenue. So I think the federal relief dollars will help a bit, but it won't come near what we need to fill the gap. But honestly, Earl, I mean, this is a grave financial situation for colleges and universities all over the country. And campuses have had to move online in a matter of days. And students and parents want housing and meal plan refunds. The spring enrollment cycle is a mess. You know, obviously, the state higher ed appropriations are going to be affected. This is a, a moment in time where higher education is going to have to reinvent itself. It was already on that path, but it's going to accelerate very quickly. I would imagine if it's going to reinvent itself, that doesn't mean that the state's going to get higher revenues. Do you think that's... Uh... Yeah, I think that's an accurate statement. I think we've got to do what other industries do, which is figure out how to resource share and in evaluate more innovative business models and expand and and become more efficient in delivering goods and services. And I think we have to figure out how to tackle this digital world in relation to higher education. Um, That's, that's going to be critical. And this is throwing us into that conversation very quickly. And like I said, we were already working on it, but it's just accelerating things times 100. Well, you talk about the digital world and you talk about transformation. You're the board member of Job Creators Network and it's, you know, for small business owners. And it seems to me that uh, small businesses are probably the ones as well as their employees that have been devastated by COVID-19. I work suggests that well over half the people that are unemployed are associated with small businesses, probably closer to 80%. Can you give us a little bit of a, a, an insight as to how Job Creators Network and is trying to help with the government and on its own uh, overcome this amazing headwind, actually terrible headwind, of trying to recover in the small business environment. Well, it's devastating right now. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, just very involved in the small business community in Colorado as an entrepreneur, but also a mentor and and uh, a coach for a lot of small businesses. And I just read a startling statistic that we are losing thirty three thousand jobs every hour of every day. Maybe Dan can give us some insight there. We've had twenty two million initial filings for um, unemployment claims over the last four weeks. Small business owners, I mean, you saw what's happening with the PPP plan, the Paycheck Protection Plan. It's already run out of money, and we've got to get more money into that so that employers, small businesses can keep people employed, and the money can funnel through the small businesses so that we can recover very quickly when we get back out there. The focus has to be on not just helping the worker, but helping the employer so they're still there so people have a job after we get through this. I read that, um, you know, 52% of American voters under 45 have already lost their job, been furloughed or placed on leave, while the elderly are definitely disproportionately affected by the health parts of this problem. The non-elderly are disproportionately affected by the economic consequences. And that's something that Job Creators Network is and has been devoted to for the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so is really 
being a warrior for small business owners on the front lines and advocating for them in D.C. and every state and making sure that we honor that job creation is one of the most uh, productive things you can do in society is, is opening a business or start or running a business and, and giving people jobs. If I'm hearing you correctly, what I think you're, you're saying, and pretty clear to me anyway, that we have got to give a priority from a national level and a state level as to how do we support and help our small businesses get get opened again. If they're not open, we don't employ people. And if they are open, we employ them. And from job creators' perspective, I'm going to ask you two questions. From a federal perspective, what do job creators think needs to be done by the, the feds? And then from a state perspective, what do you think needs to be done by the state government? Can you just kind of give us your sense of of priority there? One of the things that the state and the federal government can do in some regards is just get out of the way. Like You're seeing a lot of these regulations be pushed aside. The question is, were they really necessary in the first place? And could we be uh, could we have a more robust economy if we deregulated a lot of things? Now, honestly, there are places for regulation and it's important, but I think the overkill on regulation is one of the things we can do better. I think the other thing that we can do is um, on the federal side is a payroll tax holiday for employers, a one-time tax credit for next year for every worker that small businesses rehire this year. Perhaps, like I just was talking about, a permanent relaxation of many of the regulations that we've waived during this crisis. So I think that's how the federal government can help the state government. We've got to get people back to work as quickly as possible. We've got to honor what's happening uh, with our health, but we've also got to figure out a plan to get people back to work. What is your tactical thinking? Well, Earl, I think that many policymakers and members of the public expect that life will go back to normal by May or June, but I don't think it will. And we at Job Creators Network are, are preparing that that's not going to be the case. So I think there's an optimistic scenario where we get back to work, we flatten the curve, we have robust testing, and we develop a treatment and vaccine and everything goes as back to normal as you can. But there's a pessimistic scenario that we have to prepare for, too, where, um, you know, we don't have vaccines, we don't have cures, the curve doesn't flatten as much as we want. So I think that what we can do is really carve out who is most at risk, how do we get the people that are not most at risk back to work and protect those that are. And we've got to have a very tactical plan, very specific roadmap for small businesses like restaurants. How do you actually reopen your restaurant? Is it social distancing? Do you sit people so far apart? How do you deliver the food? How do you protect your clients and protect your workers? So we are working very diligently on the very specific tactical measures that small business owners are going to have to do to get back to work. And I think that's the most helpful thing we can do at Job Creators Network. And one of the most helpful things, policymakers and Common Sense Policy Roundtable, all the, the best thinkers can put their minds to right now. Well, one of the things that uh, that I think that you all have also been advocating is that the uh, program of PPP would be expanded, and that would be expanded, uh, and I believe it's uh, proposed was $250 billion, that that would be expanded. And I, what would you think uh, if uh, the state and local people had a forbearance on property taxes for a while or maybe some kind of a reduction in property taxes, as well as some other, the fees that the state and locals charge just so the operating costs wouldn't be so great. Is that something you think is worthwhile thinking about? I think that would be tremendous. And and how that would really impact, I mean, this would impact us as entrepreneurs, my husband and I, my husband has two restaurants. And one of the things that's not happening are the landlords are not 
getting relief on the rent or the lease payments for these businesses. And I get the situation they're in. They have mortgage payments to make, but if we could reduce the property tax payments, perhaps that would help and give them some incentive to um, relieve the rent or defer the rent so that these small business owners and restaurants wouldn't be paying full rent while they're they're, uh, the mall is shut down and you're a restaurant near the mall. I mean, that doesn't make much sense. It's, it's, a, it's a big issue right now that the restaurant industry is really taking head on. Well, that's kind of a sad scenario. I do know that um, we run a bank, as you know, that's my real living. And we are talking to everybody about what do you have to do to help you get through this? What forbearance would be appropriate? And uh, I can't believe that uh, some of the larger shopping centers think they can fill their vacancies that quickly without some forbearance on rents, but that's another topic for another time. Dan, you have been right in the the heart of the fire with regards to the SBA PPP. Give us a sense of of how you see PPP uh, and the SBA and what's evolved there. Give us an update, if you would, please. Yeah, no, thanks, Earl, and good morning. You know, the Paycheck Protection Program, Congress passed it via the CARES Act on March 27th, And on April 3rd, SBA had stood up this employee retention $349 billion loan program. And so it started fast and furious. And and that certainly has been the pace over the past few weeks up until yesterday, where as a result of a lapse in appropriation, that $349 billion in support for small businesses all over the country has now been exhausted. So The great thing about the Paycheck Protection Program, we leveraged private industry. We worked in partnership with our private lending friends, credit unions, farm credit institutions to really get this capital out to the employers as fast as we could. And it has worked. Now we're in a situation where we need additional support. We have to wait on Congress to see what appropriation, if any, they will do. And so we're kind of in a holding pattern at this time. But for all intents and purposes, the program did what it was supposed to do and was very effective in getting that capital out there over the past two weeks. I have to congratulate you as, as our bank was involved in the PPP and we had uh, people coming in immediately uh, to take advantage of the program. I understand, and you correct me on this, that you all processed on a daily basis approximately a hundred times more loans on a daily basis during that 13-day period of time than you ever have on an average before. Is that about a right number? Yeah, Earl, that's exactly correct. Just for, for full context, the last 14 days, we did more loans during that period than we've done in the last 14 years. So how in the world were you able to do that? Well, and that's again that's where it goes to- number of staff. Well, and that's where it goes to leveraging that private relationship, private industry working with our friends in the lending institutions, banks of all sizes um, have had people around the clock, having people staff processing these loans. And that's where we had to utilize that relationship. It was truly a public-private partnership. I think that'd be the only way we could have gotten those funds out as fast as we did. From my perspective, I want to thank you. Give us a little bit of insight, if you would. Do you have any sense of what particular industries or companies we're, we're trying to take it, you know, advantage of PPP and they were saying, hey, we need this money. Do you have any sense? I know it's a little bit early, but do you have a sense as to 
who they were and what kind of industries they happen to be? Yeah, no, great question, Earl. I do have a breakdown. Now, it, it doesn't include the final tally, but I think it will give everybody a good reflection as to the breakdown and where the loans went by industry. We had a good portion of our loans, up to 13%, were going to the construction industry. 12% was went to manufacturing. And of course, uh, 9% went to accommodation and food services. We know our friends in that industry especially is being hurt as we have the shelter-in-place orders and just the lack of commerce right now. So really some of those traditional industries that you would think about, restaurant, food service, hotel accommodations, but also, I mean, the construction industry, looking at that, um, I was a little surprised to see that coming in as as high as it did. But as of now, 13% of those loans have gone to that industry. And then also quickly, you know, shortly behind that was accommodation, food service, as well as our friends in the retail trade industry, close percentages as well with that. So we're seeing those impacted by the the shutdown orders. Those that you are seeing the lack of commerce and foot traffic are the obvious suspects. Uh, But really, this is having an impact on all industries. And that's being reflected in the loans that we're doing. Well, Dan, if I do my math correctly, and I heard you correctly, uh, you said 11 or 12 percent was in manufacturing. That would mean that about about 88 percent then was in the service industry. And with 70% of our economy, basically service industry, you're telling me a disproportional amount went to service industry, whereas the, where the disproportional amount of impact has been in the service industry. So it seems like it's working from a large number perspective. The money is flowing where you would hope, hope it would go. It's, do you have the same sense? Yeah, you know, I, I do, Earl. And, and, and obviously, you know, we look at the average loan size that we've given out. It's about $240,000. You know, to break it down here for Colorado, we had over 28,000 loans approved for close to $6 billion. So we know that the money's getting out to the employers to do what it's intended to do. And that is to retain those employees so that they can keep them on the payroll so that we don't have 22 million people going to unemployment insurance. But obviously, there's still a great many small businesses right now who are in need of assistance. So it's an all-hands-on-deck situation for us at SBA. I know that stands true for all of our friends in the private industry and the lending industry. And we'll continue to work together to provide the support we need. And we'll be hopeful that Congress appropriates additional funds so that we can continue this program that has been successful. Dan, I'm going to put you on the spot. And I don't know that you would – this is maybe a field question. Maybe you have the, the specific answer. How much of a shortfall versus demand do you think uh, is existing out there? 350 for, you mentioned Colorado. Can you, let's just maybe take a field question for Colorado. How much more in Colorado do you think uh, there is a need or be an interest in an additional PPP money if it were available? Double? 50%? Yeah, no, based on some statistics that our, our mutual friend Don Childers from the Colorado Bankers Association stated yesterday, I think he said that Colorado makes up, uh, you know, 2% of all small business in the country. Yet, as it pertains to Paycheck Protection Program, we received uh, 2.7% of the total allotment of those funds. So Colorado overall has done very well with this program. And I think I attribute that to all the partnerships with the people on this call, as well as, you know, the bankers associations, the credit unions, small business organizations, you name it. It has been an all hands on deck effort, but we are still hearing from so many small businesses that there is a need. We still do have a number of small businesses whose applications were in the queue before the lapse of appropriation. So there is certainly a need this unprecedented time. There's an overwhelming volume 
And I, you know, I, I know that those funds will be well utilized if Congress, in fact, appropriates additional funding. Uh, I do know that there is a number of applications still in the queue needing assistance, and, and that would be utilized. Dan, thank you. Chris, I'm going to put you on the firing line here because you've, in essence, given us a very dour look at where we are with regards to Colorado. And I just left your last uh, comments with, hey, there's a whole segment of our economy that's disappearing either because of the folly of some of the decisions that have been made on restricting it. And we also have international oil prices working against us where the Russians and Saudis would like to destroy our oil and gas industry so that they can pretty much control that going forward. So give us a vision of how you see the budgetary issues here and how we're going to try to resolve them and the research you've done. There's many, many layers to this, but in the paper we just released, I think we're trying to dissect it based upon sort of three different layers as I'm, as I'm referring to them as. And the first being the significant contraction in economic activity that's causing a severe reduction in, in tax revenue. And then from a budgetary perspective, you layer in existing reserves and how existing reserves will be used to cover shortfalls in revenue. And then we have the third layer of federal stimulus, which will partially directly offset some revenue losses, some some budgetary increases, along with covered new expenses. And so those three layers, I think, will ultimately influence the final outcome on how the, the Colorado state budget is impacted. I'm going to stop you right there because I don't want all of us to walk away from your comments you just made, that somehow we're going to have federal subsidization that's beyond the next uh, year, two years, three years. So we may have something that's stopgap from the feds, okay? But then I think we have the issue of I we have got to then regenerate the revenues we've lost, which is a part of the budgetary decision-making process that we'll be making as we have the stopgap funds available from the feds. Am I putting the proper parameters on this? Earl, I think your question is is spot on. I'd like to clarify some of the remarks I made earlier as it relates to the potential near-term and long-term uh, impacts on the state budget. I think in the near term, the existing state reserve, uh, along with the indirect impacts from the federal stimulus in terms of the conversation you were just having with Dan related to direct grants, loans, uh, along with the, federal, the stimulus to households will help prop up some economic activity that will have some indirect effects on, on the revenue projections. The current understanding for the direct grants and programmatic appropriations to state budgets is that they will only be able to be used to pay for new expenses related to the crisis and not cover revenue shortfalls. So in the near term, it may be that we'll be able to cover some of the new costs along with some of the shortfalls, but experience that we've seen from previous recessions, particularly here in Colorado, the impacts to state spending are actually not fully seen for uh, several years to come. The total reduction in state spending did not actually occur until the fiscal year 2012 post-recession. That's a budget year that starts two and a half years after the start of financial crisis. So um, the projections we are currently seeing, while they are very preliminary and we expect the state economists and 
budget writers to have updated projections prior to this to the continuation of the state 2020 legislative session in mid-May suggests that for the fiscal year 2020, which the governor will have to begin to uh, set the priorities of just coming this fall, we'll see a total revenue reduction, budget reduction of over $2 billion. So I think this is a crisis we face for likely for years to come. What I don't hear being discussed at the local level is what are we going to do to get back to Heidi's point? How do we find ourselves uh, at the state level encouraging businesses because revenues come from the individuals, people that are employed, their income, income taxes, property taxes. It comes from business successes. Do you see anything at the legislative level that says, how are we going to help businesses succeed? And how are we going to help those revenues return to previous levels? Or is it just kind of like, well, just hope things happen and uh, we'll figure out how we spend less until certain things happen to have the revenue base return. I think there's a lot of efforts that are being made now. And as you mentioned through your work to listen, to ask those questions of companies and of industries to get those recommendations and insights. Um, and they will probably come to light in the next, in the coming weeks. I'm, I'm of the opinion that I think as, as Heidi mentioned, that a large part of this is essentially getting the current very heavy-handed restrictions and implementation of very heavy-handed social distancing measures and stay-at-home orders that, you know, again, may be required from based on what we were seeing from a public health standpoint. But ultimately, I think to have a sustainable crisis management solution, we need to have guidelines and avoid these severe restrictions that we're seeing now to allow businesses to open up, remain open, have sensible practices to continue to slow the spread and the the escalation of the virus to where it might uh, be on a trajectory to overwhelm our hospital system again. But I think a lot of this will be a matter of getting out of the way and allowing businesses to mitigate their own challenges related to containing the spread of the virus, but allow them to continue to operate, stay open, and entice consumers, because I think that is is ultimately what is needed on a larger scale. And I'm hopeful in the coming weeks, we'll see, you know, roll out of these guidelines and how states' economies will will operate for likely months to come. Well, Chris, you've you mentioned in your work that there's a $3 billion shortfall at the budget. Personalize that for me, will you? What does that mean for us as a Colorado one? The impact is is undoubtedly large. I think the from a household perspective, for every household in Colorado, that dollar, that two to three billion dollar revenue reduction that we've seen estimated amounts to between eight hundred and seventy and thirteen hundred dollars per Colorado household. On the higher side, that three billion dollars equals the total amount the state appropriates to two of the largest state departments, including transportation and human services. So that is the entire budget of those two agencies combined, or it's equal to the 15 uh, to 16 smallest departments, including uh, judicial regulatory agencies uh, across the state. So this number uh, that we're facing is incredibly significant and will put a massive amount of pressure on, on spending priorities. Heidi spoke to higher ed, which I think will face probably a lot of the brunt of this so it is a large number and an unprecedented reduction 
in many ways. Well, Chris, <clears throat> one of the things that we're facing in Colorado, as you pointed out in previous studies, is in effect, and I will use my own words for it, I know the state and other folks wouldn't appreciate it, Para is in effect bankrupt. And it's probably the largest uh, liability that a lot of people don't even realize. But before this market decreased, it was a $30 billion deficit. And I think it can only increase even more in light of the market, the debacle we've had so far. And Medicaid continues to be a bigger and bigger part of our budget and keeps squeezing out other things that that we would normally have a discretion to spend our, our budgetary dollars on. We don't have much choice. We have to spend those. So where do you think the decisions are going to be made in the budget if there's going to be some decisions to cut or control expenses? I think the message, you know, I'm interested in conveying on those three, those two areas you mentioned, along with the unemployment insurance issue I mentioned at the onset of this call, is that the same time we have revenue reductions, we are expecting significant increases in demand for government services and demand for government resources And legislators, as they come back and talk priorities, should recognize that the programs you mentioned, including Medicaid and the annual requirements from taxpayer and employer contributions to PARA, will only increase in the coming years. And so should be very cognizant that the issues that were thought to be resolved just two years ago in PARA will be thrust back into the spotlight and be an issue for legislators and budget makers for years to come. So I think it's truly an issue of of getting back to to the basics and ensuring that a lot of the essential programs and government are solvent and can remain operational. And more than anything, I think ideas on where budget priorities will be made uh, will come to light and be discussed in the coming weeks. I think more than anything, we want to convey that, you know, legislators are facing a situation which is, you know, a 180 from where they were were just a month ago. A lot of the priorities in the session prior to closing the and, and suspending the 2020 session included various items which would in fact, have increased long-term commitments. And I think more than trying to address, or just as, as important as it is to address priorities in the current budget, I think it's important to recognize how potentially you know, harmful and, and, and challenged long-term spending commitments would be in this environment. Even if in the near term, they still seem relatively attractive, the long-term pressure on budgets caused by just a few of these programs will be significant. And I think should be should weigh heavily on legislators and budget makers' decisions. Well, it seems to me we have some real challenges in the state of Colorado, and I don't know about the uh, the rest of our guests, Chris, but we have had a uh, champagne taste that we have a beer budget going forward, and we're going to have to figure out how in the world are we going to handle the reality of what we really have in the way of dollars that are coming in. And you've put it really well. The decisions we make today on how we spend dollars could have a long-term impact and I would hope that Common Sense Policy Roundtable will help the legislators understand the trade-offs so that they think they're making some small feel-good decision today with regards to something, that they also understand that the long-term impact and how it's squeezing the fundamental things that make our economy grow and allow us to prosper, allowed us to prosper in the past, can still survive after three or four years from now. Everybody, thank you so much, and it's uh, been a pleasure to host the event with you. Thank you so much, Earl. Thank you. Thanks so much. Stay well, everybody. 
Thank you for listening to the Common Sense Digest. For more on today's topic, as well as our research on the most pressing public policy issues facing Colorado, please visit commonsensepolicyroundtable.org. The preceding episode, along with all others, is available on Podcatchers Everywhere or on our website in the News tab under CSPR Podcast. Our technical producer is John Ekstrom and Deft Communications. This has been a production of the Common Sense Policy Roundtable.